Well, hi, everybody, and a very warm welcome. Thank you for being with us today. If you're joining us in, in Shoreham, uh, in the North Hove site, in the South Hove site, or in Clarendon Centre, thank you for coming to Emmanuel. Uh, my name's Joel, if you're new, and we are in the book of James this term. We're in chapter 5. Right now, we're getting near the end of the letter, and verses 7 to 12. We'll read from that in just a moment. First, a few words about the gift campaign that we launched last Sunday. Uh, as a leadership team, we've been planning, thinking, praying about a number of objectives, a number of goals that we are really inspired about, things that have caught our imagination, that we want to do, that we believe are right and necessary and appropriate for the stage we're at as a church. And, uh, and so we, we've set up our, our gift campaign, got it all sorted, did the video, etc. And then the, the Ukraine crisis started three weeks ago. And uh, we knew that we wanted to respond to that as a church as well. So what we've done is we've said that we're going to uh, put 20%, designate 20% from all that's raised with this gift campaign towards that. And our hope very much is that we're able to achieve as much as possible to serve those churches in Ukraine. One of the great privileges we have as a church is that we are part of a global family uh, called New Frontiers, which includes churches in Ukraine. Uh, and really, it's quite remarkable for, for me and for Kate, my wife, that, that we have this, this even further privilege of not only being part of the same network, the same family, but genuinely knowing by friendship some of the key people involved. It's one of, one of our great privileges. And uh, one couple, for example, who have been involved in establishing churches in Ukraine for years, decades, in fact. We've known them for decades, and uh, it's a great honour to be able to support them this way and help them meet the, the very pressing needs uh, of the hour and, and knowing that they are right in the midst of this crisis, serving in all kinds of remarkable ways, quite heroic ways, and by God's grace, I, I hope are making an enormous difference. We are able to see to it that the resources we raise are supporting particular genuine needs. I wanted to say as well that the things that we're giving to locally through this gift campaign are also inspiring to us. Some people have said, could we not just give all of this gift day to Ukraine? And the heart behind that is beautiful. And uh, if, you know, I, I admire it, but I also want to say, we called as followers of Jesus to have breadth, to have big hearts, to have the ability to stay generous on multiple levels. And the things that we're doing here locally, they still inspire us. They, they still take our breath away when we think about what could be done in this city and what we want to see achieved. Especially, to be honest with you, given that we've had a couple of years, a long stretch of difficulty, it has been a, a trying season. It has been a, a tiring season, even a bit of a depleting season for us as a church. The, the, the summer camp, for example, that we intend to do in 2023, I suppose put against the backdrop of a war zone, it might seem almost a bit of a trivial thing to put money towards. But what we're doing in raising money to subsidise that, to make sure that more people are able to come to it, is we're seeing that we have something in our diary planned over the next sort of 14, 15 months that, that we can build to as a, as a new launch point for us as a church. After all that we've been through, I think it will be absolutely massive for us as a church to be able to have time, concentrated time, to be together, 
to be blessed, refreshed, to fellowship, to connect right across the whole church, from across from Shoreham to, to the east, and to, to receive from God, meet with God, pray together over a course of several days. I do believe it will be a time of significant renewal, breakthrough, relaunching for us. I'm looking forward to it with all my heart, but we cannot do it. We cannot gather all the people we want together unless we raise money to support this event. And there are other events too, like gathering our young adults next year at the Clear Vision Conference. These things are massive for the new era that we're going forward to as a church. It is time for us to rebuild as Emmanuel. And so we, we need to somehow hold in balance a, a global mentality and a local one. I suppose you could call it glocal. That's the kind of phrase people use these days, to, to be glocal followers of Jesus. And so I want to urge you to see all these things in, in the appropriate kind of balance. Uh, we will keep giving to what's happening in the crisis situation. We'll also keep giving to what we're doing as we go forward as a church here. And it just means, I suppose, that we keep aiming to not do less, but in fact to give more. If being able to give to Ukraine means that we simply can't do the things we're called to as a church, then I think the answer is we, we don't do less. In fact, we give more. Let's go for maximum generosity rather than minimum ambition in this city. And, and that's, that's going to be a challenge always. I don't know about you, I, I say this every time it seems, whenever we have a major gift campaign, something goes wrong in my domestic budget. Something. And it's the most peculiar, whether it's a car or a boiler or you know, some kind of project that, that blows up. And in this time, it was, believe it or not, my chimney. You know, we, our next door neighbours had some stuff being done on their roof. And the guy's doing it, looked at our chimney and said, you need a new chimney, mate. I thought, I, I don't need, what, this isn't Mary Poppins. I don't need a chimney. The last thing I ever thought I would need to spend lavish amounts on. And I kind of don't care, but I realise if I, you know, I probably do, I, my house is going to get drenched. So it's one of those classic situations we keep having where you intend to give and something else crops up. But I guess I've learned personally that that's one of the ways God stretches us calls us to, to test him, to see his faithfulness. And in the same way, on a church level, to, to see things like Ukraine, not as a reason to give less, but to trust more and to see what he will do. Let's go for it with all our hearts. Let's achieve everything we can across the board. Let's be big-hearted. Let's, let's believe what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8, where he talks about having grace, sufficiency at all times to do all things, to, get, to be generous in all situations, multiple situations, even at once. That was just an important thing to share at the outset. Let's get into what James has to say to us this week. James chapter 5, verses 7 to 12. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, Take the prophet who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, 
do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. So what we have in this section is James, firstly, uh, giving a call to patience, and then secondly, giving a warning about where we will particularly need to watch out that we, we are patient, where patience gets tested, a particular part of our lives where patience is tested. And then finally, encourages us by showing how we might find empowerment, strength, fuel for the patience that we're called to exercise. So let's, let's do them in that sequence. First of all, the call to patience, which bursts out at us from the very beginning in verse uh, seven there. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Be patient. I think we'd all agree that patience is a good thing. Patience is a virtue. Uh, but are we sure? Are we always sure that it's good? Think of an example that might push it to the extreme. Uh, you can go to a place in, in the south of France, a, a kind of fortress village from medieval times, very well preserved. It's, a, it's a, still a tourist attraction uh, called Eggmore, and there's a, there's a fortress um, on the city wall where were held uh, some captives in the, the 18th century, uh, including a young woman, Marie Durand, who was 14 when she was uh, taken into custody. She stayed in, effectively, prison for 38 years, being told... I guess regularly, that any day she would be allowed to leave, any day she wanted to, she could go, providing that she recanted her Protestant faith. So she was a young Huguenot, a French Protestant, and the, the, the religious authorities in that place and time uh, imprisoned people for possessing a Huguenot faith. And, and she, she would have seen... Uh, the recanting, the abandoning of her, her position, her, her, her faith in the Jesus of the Bible as just unthinkable. She, she, with all of her heart, clung to it to the point where, although she was effectively invited to leave any day she wanted, as long as she said it, it was on, on the condition that she, she left saying, I recant, I, I, j'abjure, I abjure my faith. And instead, what she did was she stayed there every day of her life for 38 years. So from the age of 14, she went through her 20s, her 30s. She would have been entering into late middle years before she knew freedom from that place. And rather than saying jabjur, she, she carved into the wall. You can still see it now if you visit the place, the word resiste, resiste. This is... a an example of uh, extraordinary, maybe extreme patience. It, it might even seem a little over the top because we think, well, why would you throw your life away? I suppose we're used to patience being exercised in humdrum situations, situations that happen daily where we, we just need a little patience. We're in a queue or we're being held up or our Wi-Fi is disconnected or we just, we just, you know, just need a little patience in that moment. But this is, this is of a different order altogether. And, and when we see that, it helps us to think through what the issues are in this very chunk of the Bible. Uh, Frederick Nietzsche, who, who was no Christian, 
He said, the person who has a why to live for will be able to bear with any how. The person who has a why to live for will be able to bear with any how. And what he's getting at is the, the necessity of purpose in our lives. We, we need purpose to be enabled to live. And when we, when we have lives fueled with purpose, we are enabled to, to undergo challenges. In, in, as far as Nietzsche is concerned, any challenges. You know, you, almost any, how, how are we going to do? How this, how this, how's that possible? Well, you don't need to know immediately, but you just, if you know why, if you know why you're living, if you have a, a sense of purpose, destiny, meaning, then you can overcome the challenges more, uh, more you, you have the potential to overcome the various challenges thrown at you by life. And, and this is actually something that ancient people generally grasp better than modern people. Because what we've done in our modern age is, is we've kind of separated out the idea of a, a world, that the world in which we live, what we, the Greeks would have called the cosmos, and meaning, cause, purpose, what the Greeks would have called the telos. And we, we've sliced them in half. We've kind of taken one side of the orange. We've cut it in half and kept one side, the cosmos. We, we believe in what we can see and feel and touch. We, the things that you can kind of test in the laboratory, we, we get that. But the idea of there being meaning and purpose, we kind of reject that. Yeah, you, you can't, no one can know that. And so what we're left doing is trying to find meaning and purpose on our own individual basis, which means that hope becomes reduced to really temporary hopes that we go for during our lives. I hope this, I hope that. And hope becomes something that's, it's, a, it's a, an emotion mixed up with fear because it's, there's no certainty in it. We hope for things in a subjective way. I, I hope this happens. I, it, it, it might not happen, but I, I hope it does. Whereas when I look at what James is saying here, he is, he is deeply connecting the, the call to patience with the exercise of hope. And the hope that he calls them to is, is the, the classic Christian hope of the New Testament, the classic Christian hope of the early church. The, the thing that the early Christians would have been living by, would have had their imaginations dominated by, the focus of their attention. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. This is a recurring theme through scripture, the expectation and hope of the Lord Jesus' return. Jesus is coming. And the, the, the power of that expectation, the, the driving power of it was, was fuel enough to inspire hope and even patience in the midst of what must have been years, generations of trial, difficulty, of the sometimes most brutal kind. The early Christians were persecuted fiercely. I mean, people today are still persecuted as Christians. In fact, there are more people martyred for the Christian faith today than were in the early years of the church. More, more Christians globally, I suppose, is the reason why. The church has never stopped being persecuted. It just happens in different parts of the world. And some of the stories of what happens in persecution today are stunning and, and sometimes heartbreaking. The church is often under fire Globally, it, it perpetually is. And in the early church, it was the certainty, the hope, the expectation, the coming of the Lord. He is coming. Sure as he rose from the grave, sure as he ascended, 
he will return. He is coming. We live for it. We hope in it. Our lives are dominated by that hope. And so patience is fueled by the expectation. And I suppose that we've lived in you know, relatively affluent circles, most of us here in the West, uh, for, for so long and relatively calm compared to previous times in history and previous other places in the world. And this kind of calm can prevent us from feeling the need for the Lord to return. You know, who needs Jesus to return? You know, we've got, you know, I've got Deliveroo. You know, I've got, I've, I've got Netflix. I don't, know if, I don't know if it's that much of a bother, really. I wonder if the 2020s being as they are, I wonder if even the epoch shifts that have been taking place uh, COVID right through to, to Ukraine are signs of things changing to the point where we do start to return to our roots as Christians. We're the people who look forward to the coming of the Lord. That's who we really are. That's what we're meant to hope for. That's meant to dominate our attention. We look to his coming. We look forward. We look forward to his great return. Mind you, just a quick parenthesis before I move on. It's worth noting that when the Bible speaks about his coming, it, it may not always be flatly referring just to that one event, the literal return, the physical return of Jesus. That absolutely dominates the horizon. But there are also, if you like, kind of more mild comings of the Lord. God showing up, the Lord Jesus showing up at stages of history. When you look at history, you realise it really is a story of epochs, seasons, stages. That, that is definitely the way it seems to work. Some of us have lived through remarkable turnings of the tide in history. Some of us were alive. Maybe some of us were alive as far back as uh, 1968 or even further back. Some great change moments. 1989 I was alive for. Dramatic time when the world changed in a few months. The world changed in 2001 on September the 11th. The world seems to be changing even this year, perhaps. And that does happen. God does things in seasons and stages. He seems to do that in our lives. He seems to do that in church life. He, he, he does things, and it seems to refer to this in, in these verses where, where James is saying, See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. He's talking about seasons. He's talking about waiting through difficult seasons, waiting confidently, hoping in precious things because seasons come where there's nothing precious. There are seasons where it's hard to find what's precious. There are seasons where we feel nothing but delay, frustration, disappointment. We, we can't find the fruit. We can't find the the. the the blessings to which we look forward to. But this is why these passages are so important. This is why this, this theme is so important. The Bible reminds us we, we have more in common as believers in Jesus with, with those who work in agriculture than we do with those who have everything on their phone immediately. The Bible uses that metaphor of waiting for, for agricultural results, fruit, Pruning, branches bearing fruit, uh, 
constantly you will see reference. Scripture throughout is replete with this kind of image. It's, it's, a, it's a great constant theme because God wants us to understand that's how he works generally. He operates through seasons. And our ability and willingness and patience to learn, wait, hold on in confident hope that is essential to growing mature in following Jesus. We cannot do without it. We, will must, we must do it. And this becomes a challenge in all kinds of ways, not least because there are trials, seasons of trial we go through, which are literally scheduled. Some people you know, go through Lent, for example. I don't particularly do that, but some, some might say, right, I'm going to do a 40-day thing. Some people do a 40-day fast, literally, a complete fast of, of food for 40 days. Some in this church have done that. Some of us have done shorter fasts. And there are various other ways you can set time. And the scriptures have examples of that. 40 days, 40 years of, of testing for Israel. The problem is that so many tests, they're not timed. <laughs> they don't run to a schedule. You can't punch in and punch out. You can't sort of look forward to, oh, look, it's all right, we've got the deadline coming soon. And there's something particularly difficult about not knowing. Just being, I don't know, what's, what's going on? When is this going to be over? When is this trial going to be over? I guess we've all known something about that in recent years. Just longing, yearning for difficult seasons to come to an end. And even having a sense that the deadline is coming, the deadline is coming, it's going to be over. And then at that last moment, oh, oh, it's not. Oh, it's not. It lingers on. It lingers on. The pain and disappointment, the heart sickness that can come is very real. James wants to be real with us about that and, and, and help us to, to see it straight, be honest about it. It's a difficulty. We have an enemy, a spiritual enemy, an evil enemy who loves to rub it in at those points to help us to think that, that God's forgotten us, that we're unknown to him, that we, we, we're kind of off his, off his radar. We don't, we don't really count and we're kind of forgotten somewhere. I, just, yeah, he, he, I don't think he knows what you're going through. I don't think he realizes how hard it is for you. And if you can be taught to believe in your soul that lie, if you can be taught to accept it as the reality that, as Isaiah says, Isaiah chapter 40, my, my way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. And God speaks to the people in that passage. Why do you say these things, Israel? Why do you say these things, O Jacob? Have you not heard? Have you not seen? The Lord is the everlasting God. He does not grow weary nor faint. And his understanding no one can fathom. Scripture calls us, especially at those times. Listen to me, please. Some of you, this is precisely what you need to hear. Because your whole life, your whole week, maybe months, maybe, maybe longer has been characterized by this profound sense. Listen to me. Some of you, this is exactly how it feels. You've been talking about it to your friends even this week perhaps or talking to yourself about it because you feel so lonely in it. This sense, I have been forgotten. I am not even sure if I'm on his radar. I did, would he care? How can I be sure that he knows and cares? How can I? And it hits home and it hits home. We feel it and the enemy wants us to feel it, wants us to sense it's hopeless because when you do that, well, that's the point. Let's, let's move on because I think that the whole point of this, this the, the atmosphere of this section of James, is, is, it's like James is saying to us, don't fall at the last hurdle. 
Do you notice the way he says, he says, you also be patient, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. You get the tone, don't you? You get the sense that you can do so well through a time of trial and testing. And you can just feel it's been so hard. It's taking so long. It's just such a difficult, and no one gets it. And he doesn't get it. And I'm just, I'm just, I can't, I, I just can't cope. And then we, we fall at the last hurdle. <laughs> the test that we, that we were given, we, we seem to do well, but the la- at the last moment, it seems too much for us and we just yield to, to despair, to selfishness, to sin. And it's interesting which particular sin. Remember we said, let's secondly, we look at the particular area where patience is tested. And it seems as though it's another case of James talking about the way we talk. He's addressing the way we talk. This is a big concern of James. Not because he just wants us to be polite and mind our P's and Q's and you know, be, be respectful of the boss and don't say the... You know, it doesn't matter what you think. It's just, just, just be careful. Be polite. No, 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 no. That is not James' attitude. He will always link what we say with what's in our heart. The mouth and the heart are never f- far away from each other in James's, in James's whole perspective. He wants us to see that what we say betrays who we are inwardly. Really, that's in the end, that's the ultimate reality. And so he speaks straight into this. Okay, self-control and patience in the midst of trial and waiting is tested in terms of how will we respond with what we say. And he picks out a couple of examples, particularly, you've got one uh, in verse 9 there, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. And then verse 12, above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no. I don't, James isn't talking there about obscenities, you know, four-letter words. That's not, that's not where, that, this part of the Bible isn't touching that. It's talking about taking oaths. He's talking about, uh, uh, you know, curses. And it, we can think about what is going, going on in this, in this verse by, by seeing what he pushes positively. See, he wants us to understand. Let's look at verse 10 together. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. He said, there's a model for you. Take, look at the prophets. Those who spoke in the name of the Lord. I, I, I would use the example of Moses. And Moses, some people wouldn't say, think of Moses as a prophet, but he was a prophet to be sure. And one of the things about Moses that's, that's that's striking is how meek he was. The Bible remarks about it. He was the meekest man that walked the earth. It says it in Numbers chapter 12 and other places. It gives examples of it because it shows him under attack. It shows how Moses handled it when he must have been tempted to seek vindication, when he must have been tempted to speak in the name of himself to speak for himself, to defend his name, his reputation, his honour, his worth, his image, his profile, his likes, his clicks. He, 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 he must have been tempted terribly, but remarkably, at times, even when he's under attack, even when he's being unfairly criticised, his response is just to wait on God, to trust in God's willingness, God's love for him, God's justice and eagerness to vindicate Moses. Now Moses didn't do this perfectly, but generally speaking, this is his story. And it's a, it's a powerful example to us. James wants us to use the example. But the thing that strikes me is that it speaks of a man who, as he says here, is speaking in the name of the Lord. 
What, what Moses wants to speak of is in the name of the Lord. What Moses is concerned about is the name of the Lord. That's his obsession. That's his focus. That's his preoccupation. The name of the Lord, the reputation, the honour of the Lord. That's what Moses is caring about. Not the honour of Moses. Not the reputation of Moses. Not the name of Moses. What happens in verse 12 where, where the writer says, don't take oaths. I think that's what he's getting at. I think that's the precise issue. He, he's, what do we do when we take oaths? It's like we're, we're, we're kind of using language to manipulate. We're using words. We're sometimes we're kind of going nuclear with words. We're exaggerating on purpose. We're, 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 we're finding strong ways to say things. I find myself doing this. If I get into a situation where I feel kind of cornered, and my name is not being honoured. I don't feel respected. If I'm in an, in, a, in an argument, a quarrel with somebody, and too often the, the quarrel might not have anything to do with me and my honour, but somehow that creeps into the issue because it, it seems important to me. Perhaps that, that sort of fear creeps in, and I find it so easy to not literally take oaths, I suppose, but to reach for, for the extremes in the way I speak, to, to, to speak in, in foolish ways. I say things that I later think, I don't even think I believe that. <laughs> Why did I say that? I don't even think that's true. I, I said it out of, out of pride, out of a sense of my importance. I, I wasn't being meek. I wasn't trusting him to vindicate me. And we do that. We tend to... I think you all do that. I think we are susceptible to it as people. And my urge to you, my call to you, my plea with you is to, to, to look at yourself. Think about the ways that you use speech. You might do it in different ways to me. You might do you, the way you argue, the way you present, present yourself, the way you try to win things and gain things and win over other people and seek your pound of flesh. Listen, friends, James is calling on us. He's saying, let your yes be yes, let your no be no. Trust the Lord to vindicate you. S seek his honour, the name of the Lord, not your, your honour, not the name of whoever you are. Put that aside and trust him. Trust him enough to just speak plain, to speak honestly and openly so that people can trust your, your honesty. You don't have to reach for extremes to make points and, and, and say things so strongly that in the end people find it hard to know what to believe when you speak. So it's, it's an example, uh, Moses is an example that he seems to be offering, but it's not the only example. Let's look at, at the third thing. We've talked about the call to patience, the testing of patience. I want to talk about the empowerment towards patience. We've just got time to do this. He, he draws out a specific example. Now, I, I've used Moses because I can see that kind of as, an, as a model of what he's saying in verse 10. But verse 11, he actually names one, all right? Verse 11, he says, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job. And you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Maybe you don't know the story of Job. We don't have time to catalogue all the horrors that happened to him. But you must read the book of Job. It is a staggering, extraordinary book. Quite long and meditative and thoughtful and poetic, but the story is, is astonishing. This is a story about a man who suffered horrifically for reasons he was never even allowed to know. He's never even allowed to know why this happens. We do, the readers of the book, we do, because we're told why it happens. But the thing that strikes us is Job's willingness and ability to stay 
patiently trusting, patiently trusting, in spite of everything, in spite of friends and, and a wife who encourage him in the wrong directions, give him bad advice. And his, his wife even says to him, just curse God and die. She's furious with Job. <laughs> she can't stand it. He's so patient. He won't, he won't speak his hatred out to God. And she, she's tired of him. This is what happens. If we exercise patience, if you truly do what James is saying here, what you may find is that people around you urge you to become impatient. You don't, you, your patience is not necessarily embraced and welcomed by everybody. So the battle to, to stay patient can be ever so tough. It was for Job. Job managed, generally speaking, generally speaking, to push through, to stay patient, to stay trusting, 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 tr in the midst of so much suffering, staying trusting. I know that my Redeemer lives. I know and that I shall stand on the latter day in the earth. I, I believe him. Though he slays me, I will trust in him. I will trust. These are the words of Job. He was a great truster of God, despite everything. And it was expressed in this seemingly miraculous level of patience in his life. And what's the secret of it? This is the point. We want to see the, the empowerment, right? The fuel of this in this passage. And I, I, I do want to show you how this... This, this works in this, in this passage. It, to me, my, my, my need to be vindicated needs to be held at bay, all right? And so does yours. The sense that we might have that, if, if, I'm, if I'm, say, in a dispute with somebody or, or in a situation where I, I, I feel that I'm right about something and the other person is wrong, I might get to the point where I so want to be vindicated, especially if I feel like I may have been mistreated in the process. And maybe this has happened to you. Somebody's spoken against you or you, you got into a tussle with somebody and, and you, you feel, I just, it's not fair. It's not fair. I'm being unfairly seen and treated. And the longing for vindication can become controlling. It can actually become our, our great desire. <laughs> the thing we need the most is just if, if only we could be vindicated. I long for that day when God would step in and just judge my enemies. Just like Moses dealing with Miriam. Uh, God, sorry, when God deals with Miriam on Moses' behalf in Numbers 12. When God just shows up and vindicates Moses. Wow. <laughs> Or if Job, when God shows up at the end of Job and, and just vindicates Job and silences and ignores his foolish friends who kept trying to give their advice. And Job is like, well, thanks very much. It's just, wow, what a turnaround. Now, our desire for vindication mustn't become a controlling thing. It mustn't become the, the, great, the great goal of our lives. Because, first of all, it won't satisfy you anyway, even if you got vindicated and everyone respected you. Do you know how hollow that would feel in the end? It's not what you were made for. It won't satisfy your, your yearning inwardly, which only God can. And, and it, in itself, it can become a, a monstrous desire that controls us. What if you're wrong? What if your desire for vindication on a certain matter is wrong? What if God was to show up in this issue and say, do you know what? All the time you've been wrong. This other person's been right. You thought you were right. No, 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 they were right all along. What if that was the case? You learned, you spent your life yearning for some kind of justification. 
And this is why we need to settle in our hearts. In the end, my vindication isn't the most important thing. It's interesting to me that even Job had to confess sin to God. Even Job, despite his record, he made mistakes and he had to say sorry. He had to repent. He had to say, I'm sorry to God. He says, I repent in dust and ashes. At the end of all he went through. But he also said, my ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen. And it's really interesting. I was noticing this in the week. James uses the same kind of phrase when he's talking about Job. And I just wondered if he's kind of deliberately pinched that line. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job and you have seen the purpose of the Lord. See, you need more than the example of good people like Job and Moses. I'm glad for their example, but I need to see the purpose of the Lord. I need to see the goodness of the Lord, the, the, the good purposes. I need to see the Lord. Job, it's just like Job did. Job had an experience of the wonder of how good God is. He, it, the, this is the thing that filled his heart. Everything else was given back to him. His, all of, all of his health, his family, his, his wealth, all of these things were given back to Job, which is God's great, wonderful vindication. It's very kind of God to do it all. But you also note, more importantly, that Job meets with the Lord and finds that the Lord is enough for him. I say this because we do need to, in our longing to get through difficult seasons, and in our search for, for a meaning, why is it so difficult right now? Why is it so hard? And why won't God show up? Why won't God deal with that difficult situation? Why won't God deal with that person or those people or answer that prayer? Why won't he? Why is it taking so long? Why, why did that house fall through? And we, we, we wanted to go on holiday and COVID and we couldn't fly and we, we looked forward to that. And, why did that money fall through that we were expecting? Why did that promotion not happen? I so expected that. Why? Why is it? I just waited and waited and the season was so long and I was so patient. And God just doesn't seem to care. He doesn't seem to know what I'm going through. And I just yearn for just vindication. I just, wanna, I just wanted to be vindicated. Looking for the wrong thing. What you actually need is the God that you've forgotten. The God that you've, you've lost in it all. You've forgotten who he is. You've forgotten what he's like. You've, you've lost him in it all. <laughs> and this is Job's story. He tells, he tells you, you've heard of the steadfastness of Job and you've seen the purpose of the Lord. How the Lord is compassionate and merciful. This is what you need. I tell you, this, this is what you need. This. Nothing more, actually. Even more. You, you, God might vindicate you. You might, you might have all kinds of wonderful things sorted out in your life. All your problems might be reversed. Maybe they will. I hope they will. I hope they will for all of us. But honestly, that won't be the answer ultimately. You need the Lord who is compassionate and merciful. Because when you have him, you can trust him. You can hold on to him when there's no vindication. When there's, there's, you're still being ignored by others, but you know he would never ignore you. <laughs> How could we imagine that he, he doesn't understand? How could we dream that he doesn't 
sympathize? How can we, how can we miss the fact when it is this one, this very God who became one of us? It's this very God who took on flesh so as to sympathize with us in our weakness, so as to be touched by the feeling of our infirmities. And the times where we feel forgotten, the times where we feel that God has just lost touch with us, doesn't understand what we're going through, where we feel let down, heartbroken and alone, those are the very times he, in his soul, is tender towards us. Deeply, deeply tender, compassionate. He walked our roads so that he would know our experiences. This living God came amongst us. <laughs> he came and walked amongst us, took on flesh to be compassionate so he could be compassionate to us in our waiting and help us with patience. And he is merciful. In other words, he is tenaciously determined to love you despite you, to love you however bad you are, to love you however little you deserve it, to love you at your worst. When we are at our worst, he gives his best because the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Merciful. Do you understand his mercy? It means today, friends, even if you think this sermon makes me feel like I've failed, We've all failed. I've not been patient. I, I complain. I grumble. I use the wrong words in different I just, I know that I, I, I stand condemned by much of what this passage says. I'm so grateful I have in Jesus one who is compassionate and merciful. And my hope is not in trying hard to put up a good version of myself, to, to do what James exhorts me to better next time, but to come back to the God who is compassionate and merciful. If, you've, if you feel that you've blown it, this is, this is good. That's a good place to start. Learn his compassion. Learn his mercy. Stay there. Stay close to it. And out of confidence in him, learn to exercise the patience he calls us to. Let's pray right now. Father, help us to do these very things. Teach us to live patient because of the gracious way that you've revealed yourself to us. The Lord who is compassionate and merciful. In Jesus' name. Amen.